Bibles, turn to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 8, Mark 8. This will be our last sermon in Mark for a while, so this is a, a good stopping point. You'll see as, as we look at this passage. Uh, next week, we're going to begin, Lord willing, a, a, a summer-type series on the personal spiritual disciplines. And so we're going to be answering the question, how do we grow as Christians? What are the means that God's given us to grow? And so that'll start, Lord willing, next week. Um, but, but so this, this is our last one in Mark, and this is a great, great place to take a break from Mark. And so, so bear with me, because as I was preparing, this is, this is by far the longest introduction that I've ever done for a sermon in Mark. Okay, but, but bear with me, okay, bear with me, because it is purposeful. It is purposeful, and I, th- I think it'll be beneficial as, as we go. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Well, one of the, the numerous benefits of, of sequentially going through books of the Bible, like we've been doing in Mark, one of the benefits is that you get a sense of the overall literary purposes of the human author, Okay, so, so we get a sense of what the author's trying to do. When, when, you're, when you're reading context from start to finish, books of the Bible, you, you get a sense, you get a feel for the, the humanity of these books. And so part of, part of the, the keys in, in Bible study is understanding what's called authorial intent, which simply means when we study a passage of Scripture, we want to know what did the author mean when he wrote it. This is how, this is how we communicate when we write letters. We want them, we assume that they understand what we're saying. Our, our in, intention our purpose for writing is necessary to understand what we mean. And so as we spend week after week following Mark and, and his account in this gospel allows us to, to understand themes. Now, now one thing I, I just want to make a point here. I think it's important that, that to be reminded of what the church has always believed about scriptures. Namely, that, that all of scripture has two authors. So no matter where you turn in the Bible, no matter what book you're in, what passage you're in, what verse you're in, there, there are two authors now, now, let me be clear that, that God is the supreme author. Okay, so if we want to rank the, the, the authority of authors, um, actually, that's probably not even beneficial. It is God's word, so God, it, all scripture is God-breathed, while at the same time, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as, as Peter tells us. And so there's two authors. And so, so what, I'm, what I'm saying, that the benefit of going through books of the Bible, is we get to understand or get to feel the, the humanness of these books. Because humans are writing. Now it's helpful, when, I remember when I was growing up, uh, when, when I would hear that, 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 that God, that, that men of, of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's how that played out in my mind. The Apostle Paul goes up in some dark room, he says, okay, Lord, write what you want, closes his eyes, and he's, he's overtaken by the Spirit, and he loses all control, he loses all mindfulness, and, and he just, his arm starts moving, and next thing he knows, he's written a letter to Galatians or something. Okay, that's how I thought, but that's not what we find. Okay, that's called a, a dictation theory or a mechanical dictation theory that, that simply views these guys as, as stenographers who have no personality, who they just, they just write what, what God tells them. That's, that's not what we see all you have to do is look at the, the letters and the, the books that we have. What we find is that God uses, so God's word, all scripture is God-breathed. Okay, so, so God has inspired all of scripture, but he's done so by using human authors. And so when I talk about the humanness of scripture, what I'm not saying is that I believe scripture is fallible. A lot of people say, well, because it's human authors, it can't be true, totally trustworthy. I deny that wholeheartedly. I think because it's God-breathed, Scripture shares attributes of God. 
God is perfect. God is holy. God cannot lie. So to say that his word is wrong is to deny core characteristics of God. And so all of Scripture is divinely authored and inspired and inerrant, infallible. I, I hold that wholeheartedly. I believe that wholeheartedly. And, and the majority of the church has. It's only in recent times that that's been, come under the attack that it has. But what I'm saying is that the humanity of the Scriptures is that we understand what they're doing. God used human authors and human personalities to write His Word. And so when we read a, a book like Galatians, Paul is really angry. How could you Galatians turn from the gospel so quickly and believe this false gospel? I'm astonished. This this is his human personality. He's really upset. Or when he's writing to the Thessalonians, he says, I was so concerned for you. I couldn't bear it anymore. So I sent Timothy to find out how you're doing. He's he's concerned like a father, like a mother. And and he says, now that Timothy's come back and give me a good report, I'm comforted. This is human authorship. and, And this is at play throughout all of scriptures. And so when we come to the gospel, specifically Mark... Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, all these authors have purposes that they're writing their Gospels. And so they're ordering events, and and they're organizing the material in such a way to make a point, just like any author does. They start at one point, they end at one point, and there's a purpose for it. And so as we've been studying Mark's Gospel, as we've seen one, we've been reading through verse after verse after verse, sequentially, we've been able to recognize that, that Mark's point thus far clearly has been the identity of Jesus. That's what we've been seeing. Hopefully, if you've been with us any of the weeks, you've, you've seen that week after week after week, Mark wants us to know who Jesus is. And so let me just briefly, let me run through, because, because all throughout these first eight verses, there's been, there's been these hints of, of, of mistaken identity and then some hints of, of right, rightly identifying Jesus. But just let me, let me jog your memory. So all the way back in, in Mark 1, 27, when, when Jesus is talking, he goes into the synagogue at the very beginning, and when he's done talking... Mark says they were astonished. So the people, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. So there's this account of awe and wonder. Well, who is this guy? So we're left to wonder, wow, what, who is, what's his identity? Or, or later in, in Mark chapter 2, after he heals the, the paralytic man, that the man and his friends, they walk out, and then Mark records they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so the crowds are wondering, well, who in the world is this that even this man can forgive sins? So they're wondering, who, what's his identity? There's these accounts of awe and wonder. There's accounts of incorrect conclusions. Probably the, the worst case is in Mark 3 when we had the scribes who said, this guy's doing the work on, on account of the devil. Right? He's possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He's casting out demons. So that's wrong. Clearly, we as a reader say, well, no way. But that, that's a mistaken identity. And later in, in chapter 6, when he goes to his hometown, remember, they kick him out. They say, this guy's from Nazareth. His brothers and his sisters, they're right here with us. Who, who does he think he is? They, they miss it. And, and then in, in March 6, when we looked at King Herod, he says, John the Baptist has come back. I beheaded him, but he's back doing these miracles. And then others say a prophet or, or Elijah. So you have these in, incorrect conclusions. And then most recently, we've come to accounts of disciples, their failure to understand. So on the sea, when, when Jesus calms the storm, they say, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're, they're wondering, who is this? And we as readers are on this journey saying, we know, we know. But, but as the characters in the story, as they're progressing, they're, they're not getting it. Or later, they're utterly astounded after he was walking on water and, and he gets in the boat. Or, or later, most recently, crossing the Sea of Galilee. He's, Jesus, don't you get it? Why are you arguing about bread? Don't you understand? And so there's this, this failure of the disciples. 
And in all these cases, all these, all these human characters involved, whether men, women, scribes, disciples, Herod, messengers, they all failed to rightly recognize the identity of Jesus. They all, they all fail to do that. Their awe and their wonder, they didn't lead them to recognize who he was and worship him. Their, their conclusions, they just made wrong conclusions, or they just, in the disciples' case, they're hard-hearted and slow to understand. And so we as readers, as we're getting through, halfway through this gospel, we're thinking, how can they not get it? How can they not understand? But in the midst of all of these, so, so that the, the majority are missing it, but Mark, I think, intentionally has placed a few accounts of people who get it right. So if you remember, Mark himself, the first, the first verse of this gospel, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First verse, 1-1, one, one. That's, that's Mark saying, Here, here's who he is. Later, not long after in chapter 1, after Jesus is baptized in, in the river, do you remember what happens? A voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well, well pleased. So Mark says, he rightly identifies him. The father rightly identifies him. And then an unlikely source, if you remember, every time there's, there's a case of demon possession, the demons get it. Do you remember? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know why you've come. Are you going to cast us out? And so in Mark 124, in Mark 134, in Mark 3, 11, and 12, in Mark 5, all of these cases, the, the demonic spirits, they know who he is. Yet all these other human characters, every human character misses it. And so Mark is leading us up. And this whole time he's letting the question of this identity just kind of loom overhead until we get to our passage this morning, Mark 8, 27 through 30. Because here in our passage, Mark reaches a turning point. So this is, this is going to be a hinge. So the identity of Jesus is going to be kind of, it's going to reach here. And then immediately in, in verse 31 of chapter 8, it, it's going to go another direction. So this is kind of the, the hinge, a connecting point, a, a transition in his, in his gospel. And we're going to find here the first time that any human in our story gets it. And it's going to come from the lips of, of Peter. He's going to make the good confession, which we've probably all heard. You are the Christ. We'll read it in a minute. But so with this good confession, Mark concludes the first half of his gospel. So let, let's look at our passage, Mark 8. I'm going to read verses 27 through 30. So follow along if you have, if you have your Bible with you. Follow along as I read these, these verses. Beginning in Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We'll get to verse 30. Don't worry. I know the questions are going. Uh, but, but So I've broken this down really two sections. So, that, so Q&A part 1, Q&A part 2. Okay, that, that's, a, that's as simple of a breakdown as you can get. So verses 20, 27, 28, we have the first section, the first round of question. And answer then verse 29 and 30, we have the second round. So let's look first there at verse 27, the first round of question and answer. So our passage picks up following the healing of the blind man. If you remember last week, we saw the blind man, and there's this, this partial, this two-stage healing where he sees trees, people like trees walking, and then, and then Jesus again touches him, and his, his sight is restored. 
Well, verse 27 picks up right off the heels of that. So there in verse 27, Mark says that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And so, so, so the sense here, Mark is just painting this picture that the disciples are just on a walk with their teacher, just on, down a long dirt road, taking a walk. No agenda, just walking and talking. And, and so they, Mark locates their final destination in Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of where they just were. So they're, they're just going north, several-day journey. And so after this walk, they arrive at that city. And, and the thing to mention about this specific city is that it had long been a center of pagan worship. So if you, if you remember all our discussion about ge- geography in, in the gospel, this is as far from Jerusalem as you can get. Okay, it actually it had several names and had bo- most recently been named Caesarea Philippi after the Roman emperor. And so this was a center of, of pagan worship. It's not a Jewish city. It's a hub for Gentile worship. And that's where they're going and it's on the way there to this village that Jesus asked his disciples a question. Look there in verse 27. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so first question, first round of questions, notice whose opinion Jesus is seeking. Who do the people, who do men, who do others say that I am? And then verse 28, they give three answers. Three answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. That's, that's popular opinion, right? If, if that's a Gallup poll, that's the top three answers. And in fact, these are the exact same answers that Mark 6 we, we found, we encountered, when, when there's the, the mention of Herod. But so these are three common assumptions about Jesus. And so the, the, the disciples have a grasp on, on what people, what others are saying. But, but notice, notice a few things about these answers. They're incorrect, yes, but, but notice, notice a few things. First, notice that they're all respected figures, Do you see that? These are all respected, especially from an Old Testament perspective. These these are revered figures. There's no question among popular opinion whom whom the disciples are are telling the answers of, there's no question that that this Jesus was sent by God. And so we've been with the crowd as as they've heard the authority with which Jesus taught. We've been with the crowd as they've seen miracle after miracle taking place in, in the public eye. And so it's clear to everyone that the ministry of this man, Jesus, has marks of divine authority and approval all over it. And so notice that, according to popular opinion, the the biggest struggle isn't whether or not this man is sent by God as a prophet. That's not the question. The struggle is, what prophet is he? How do we fit him into our paradigm? So I say, well, maybe it's Elijah. One of the the most well-known Old Testament stories in 2 Kings 2, remember Elijah? He, He doesn't die. How cool is that? I remember as a kid thinking, wow, chariots of fire. But there in 2 Kings 2, Elijah and Elisha are walking along, and, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He's taken with chariots of fire, and, and Elisha's down on the ground crying, my father, my father. And he saw him no more. And that's the end of Elijah. And so people are saying, well, may, may, he, he didn't really die. Maybe this is Elijah. Maybe he's just come back down on the cl- from the clouds. Maybe that's who it is. Or... Elijah, there's also an Elijah-type figure in Malachi 4, this Old Testament prophecy that, that Malachi said, and, and you can write this down, Malachi 4, 5, where Malachi says, the words of the Lord, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they knew when Elijah comes, it's, it's going to be the precursor to the awesome day of the Lord. Well, well, maybe this is him. Maybe he's Elijah, and then he'll come the great day of the Lord. So maybe it's Elijah, or maybe it's John the Baptist. We obviously, as readers, know that's not the case. But, but he had been more recent. Maybe, maybe, Herod, maybe Herod had sent out some propaganda saying, no, it's just John the Baptist. Don't worry about him. 
Or maybe it's another one of the prophets, thirdly. Well, maybe it's another one. In fact, there, there's a, a, a category. If you remember Moses in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord had told Moses, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you from among your brothers. There's going to be another one like Moses coming. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Maybe that's who it is, they would say. Maybe this is the one that Moses was promised. And so we see from all these, all these answers, the issue wasn't whether or not this man was sent from God. They're all revered figures, Old Testament figures. The issue was, where does he fit into God's plan? Which the second similarity between all these options, they're all equally inadequate. They're all wrong. They don't sufficiently describe who is before them. They all fall short. Now, yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't just another one in the lineup, right? All that came before, they're they're just part of the house. Jesus comes as the builder. All that came before, they they were just shadows. Jesus is the substance. All that came before, they're just pointers saying, one's coming, one's coming. Jesus is the one they're pointing to. Jesus was not a pointer, a forerunner, a preparatory figure. No, they, they were insufficient because they, they failed to recognize who this was. This one was a landscape-shaping person that had stepped on to scene, stepped on the scene, stepped into history. All of God's dealings with Israel, all of God's dealings with humanity were culminating in the life and ministry of this one before them, the one who's asking them this question. This man was the final stop on the prophet train. There's nothing else to anticipate. No one else is coming. This one is it. And the people had failed to recognize just what was taking place before their very eyes. And they'd failed to rightly identify Jesus. Well, before we move on to our, to our second section, I just want to stop and I want to make a, an important point of application. That's simply to ask the question, how do you perceive Jesus? I think it's right for us to stop here and say, well, how do you perceive Jesus? That's what they're asking here. I think it's as important for us to consider as it was for those who saw Jesus ministering before their eyes. I would say it's impossible to downplay the importance of the question at hand. The identity of Jesus is the issue. The identity of Jesus is the issue on which the gospel depends. And so if you get Jesus wrong, your gospel's wrong. You can't downplay the significance of the question. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder how would you answer the question? Who do you say that Jesus is? I I would simply tell you that every answer that you give, no matter how good or well-intentioned, every answer that falls short of recognizing the cosmic significance of Christ, of Jesus, it's insufficient. Either Jesus is the Christ or he isn't. I think the fact that so many people in our culture can be indifferent to Jesus is evidence that that we have done a poor job communicating him and his identity. Jesus is not someone that you can be indifferent towards. He either is who he says he was or he wasn't. I mean, it's amazing to know as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark how rare it is to find people who are undecided. They realize the significance and they make up their mind. He's a polarizing figure. Either, Either he's recognized, okay, we don't know exactly who he is, but he's sent by God. Or in the worst case scenario, he's, he's, he's a fraud, he's a blasphemer, he's sent by Satan himself. But they make up their mind. In our time, in our culture, even here in our own church, it's easy for Jesus to be met with indifference. Yeah, he's a nice guy, he's, he's a good source of morality. 
I'll be a red-letter Christian. I'll follow his, his directives. Or he's got some good advice. I want, I want my kids or my grandkids or my great-grandkids to follow him or so on and so on and so on. We, we can be indifferent. Yeah, okay. I'll just, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you, if you, don't, if you don't recognize, believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, my, my prayer is that you would decide that you would respond accordingly in light of the scriptures, in light of this passage. Jesus is the Christ. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your trust and your confidence. He is the Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning, can I, can I tell you that he is able to save you? Can I tell you he's the only one able to save you? He's the only one who has authority to forgive sins, and not, not just sins in general, but your sins can be forgiven by this one. He's the only mediator between God and men. The only one. He's like none that have ever come before and like none that will ever come after. It's a non-Christian. This man demands a response. He demands your response. And that response, the right response is to acknowledge that he is the Christ. And to repent and and to cast yourself upon him and and to worship him as Lord. But but it's not just non-Christians that that need to ask this question. As, As Christians, I would ask you, how do you perceive Christ? Maybe you've, maybe you've come to recognize, yeah, he's the Christ, and maybe you've turned from your sins and put your faith in him, but, but that doesn't prohibit you, that doesn't prohibit me from encountering identity issues regarding him. One, one commentator asked this question, he said, do we domesticate Jesus merely as Lord of the church or, or Lord of my personal prayers or, or Lord of my family? I mean, I would ask you, when you woke up this morning, when your thoughts gravitated towards, towards church, towards Christ, how, how did you perceive him? Day in, day out, when you wake up and go to work, when you wake up and, and deal with kids or, or a, you caretake for a, a parent, everyday occurrences of life, my question is, who do you say that he is? How do you think about Jesus? Do you bow before him as the Lord of the universe? The Lord over political rulers and business leaders, the Lord over creation, the Lord over his church, the Lord to whom we are to submit that, that's the Christ that, that we've trusted in. And so, Christian, let this text, let this reality of, of who this man is, let, let this shape your thinking. Use, use this passage as an opp- opportunity to recalibrate our inadequate assumptions about Jesus. Because there's a sharp difference between the inadequate opinions of men that we saw in verses 27-28 and the affirmation of faith that we'll see uttered by Peter in verses 29 and 30. And so let's look at those verses. Part two. Part two, verses 29 and 30. Question and answer, round two. So after asking his disciples how, he, how, how he's identified by people, Jesus then asks a second question. It's almost identical, except for one small word. So notice there in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? So after Jesus establishes these, these incorrect opinions of others, Okay, disciples, good. You, you got a good feel for, for, the, for the public opinion. But then he turns the question inward. What about you? The, 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 the emphasis is on the you. Who do you say that I am, disciples? It's, it's easy to, to know what others think, but, but what about you? What's your answer? I was reminded back of, of Mark 4. After he'd calmed the storm and he'd gotten in a boat with them, and they, they, Mark recorded they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this? Here in our passage, it's as if Jesus is saying, you remember when he asked that? Do you have enough evidence yet? You didn't know, then what about now? Jesus is asking the disciples to answer their own question. 
and they recognized who he was yet. And, and here, Mark, having set the stage, preparing us for, for chapter 8, he locates the truth, the, the good confession, on the lips of one of his followers. So it's good news. They, they, they got it. They got it there in verse 29. Notice after, after Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. Ding, 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 right answer. He, he's got it. It's as if Mark has worked this whole way to get there, and so we have a disciple saying, yes, they got it. And so we all, as the crowd watching, Peter, he got it. Good job. And then we read verse 30. Jesus charges them strictly, don't tell anyone about me. You got it, but don't tell anyone about me. So we'll come back to that, but, but let me close. Here, here's two final applications of our passage. First, application one, the identity of Jesus. Again, the main idea of, of this passage, the main idea of Mark's gospel thus far, has been, who is this man? And, and this makes that same point. Week after week, as we encounter Christ in this gospel, we're, we're forced to make a decision. Who is he? As I mentioned, it's one of the most important questions that we'll ever have to consider. And so I'd simply encourage you, don't let the clear purpose of Mark, his authorial intent that you know who Jesus is, don't, don't miss it. He's labored hard to make it clear when we get to chapter 8 who this is, that Jesus was and is the Christ. So the identity of Jesus is, is the first application. But then secondly, second application, the suffering Christ. So when we look at verse 30, so, so I've, I've built up this confession, and I've said Mark's been working towards this. Well, then why in the world in verse 30... When Peter finally gets it, why don't we have bells and sirens and Jesus saying, go, run with that, take it to the hills and the byways, tell them all. Why isn't that how Jesus responds? Instead, he says, don't tell anyone. And in fact, that that strong language, it's actually the the strictly charging them, that's the same language he uses to demons when he rebukes them. And so why, why does Jesus respond this way? We've seen it a couple times, um, so I'm going to skip all that. Here we go. So why does Jesus say that? Here's why. They've got it right, so it's right. It is a right confession, but it's still incomplete in the disciples' mind. It's still partial. Yes, it's true that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he's the one sent by God. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah, the promised one. They finally got his identity right, but all how they fill in that, that office how they understand the Messiah, the prophet, the promised one, it, it's still lacking. They don't understand what that means. They don't have the right understanding of, of what this Messiah has come to do. They got it right that he's the Messiah, that, and that's good. But their expectations, their assumptions, their understanding of this Messiah were not quite right. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't right yet. It's almost like here their eyes have been opened. So finally they see something, but... Their vision still isn't crystal clear. It, it's still a bit blurry. It's, it's like they're seeing people who are walking around like trees. It's not clear yet. They, they got the first part. Their eyes have been opened. So yeah, he's the Christ. And, and Matthew's gospel says only God can reveal that to you. So they, they got it right, but it's still not complete. You see, they, their understandings, assumptions, expectations of the Christ still had a ways to go. It still had to be shaped. They, they had no categories for a Christ, get this, who would suffer and die as a criminal. So they got the Christ, but, but now you're going to tell me, Jesus, that you've got to be crucified. That's not the Messiah that we know that's coming. And so they still don't get it. It's not a fulfilled, filled-out understanding. Which is why the very next verse records Jesus rebuking Peter. 
Right? So right there, the, the very next verse, verse 31 of Mark 8, Jesus tells them many things. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. And he's going to be killed. And then Peter says, no way. No way that's going to happen. Peter shows he doesn't get it. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This Messiah, yes, you got it right, but this Messiah is going to be crucified. And so the rest of Mark's gospel is, is Jesus intentionally saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. So Mark is, Mark is filling out this Christ. Peter and his disciples still have a long way to go in understanding the identity of Jesus, which is why they're charged. Don't tell. If they tell the Christ, that they're going to have all kinds of misinformation with their proclamation. Jesus still has some work to do with them. But, but as I close this application, we're different than them, aren't we? When, when we hear that Jesus is the Christ, we, we have a category for understanding the Messiah who's been crucified. That, that's, how the under, that's how it's come to us. We're, we're on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so we as, as readers, we're way ahead of the disciples. We know the ending. So when we read that, that Jesus is the Christ, when we confess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, our confession is filled with meaning lost on the disciples at this point. Now, yeah, they'll get it. Acts 2 is evidence. They, they do get it. And they, they turn the world upside down, but, but they don't get it yet. But we, we confess knowing that he had to suffer and die. We can't think of a Messiah without thinking of his cross, his suffering. We know that without his death, we have no life. Without his suffering, we don't have sins forgiven. With, without his death in our place, we have no shelter from the wrath of God. But brothers and sisters, friends, we know that the Christ has suffered. And he did so willingly in our place. And that's good news for us. We have the Christ who suffered for us. Let's pray.